Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the Frequent Issuer's Managing Editor. And I'm John Hay, Corporate Finance and Sustainability Editor. We've had a rare sighting in the bond market this week, John. Um, Our senior emerging markets reporter, George Collard, will be joining us shortly to talk about some investors who are worried that they're at risk of being paid too much in their uh, bond investments. Yes, yeah. Um, That's about African governments um, coming back to the bond market. There was a deal this week, which is going on at the the end of this week, uh, which is very promising because there hasn't been one for a long time. But um, the the rates for other issues remain very high. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But first, of course, we have one of those events in the markets this week that sort of feels like both a huge moment and then absolutely nothing at all um, at the same time. And that was Fitch's decision to downgrade the USA from AAA to AA+. Um, and we'll also have, uh, after that, John, we'll be talking about the story you've written. Um, it's an old idea that's been rattling around development finance circles for years, but might now about to become real. And that's a sovereign wealth fund to pay for forest conservation. Yes, so Ralph, this week, uh, Fitch downgraded the US, didn't it? And um, it, it was a it was an extraordinary event, really, because it was exactly the sort of thing where as soon as they did it, you know, a lot of people said, oh, what rubbish, you know, how dare you? People like Janet Yellen, the US Treasury Secretary. And the general assumption was, well, you know, nobody cares. You know, Fitch is the is a sort of lesser of the three rating agencies and um, you know, they're, they're sort of barking at an elephant, right? But, <laughs> but, but the weird thing was, it didn't turn out like that, did it? No, it's been a it's been a curious. And now, of course, you would expect Janet Yellen to uh, to dig out the uh, the rating agency for this decision. But um, just just a bit of background. Uh, Twelve years ago, all three of the major rating agencies used to rate the uh, US as AAA. Uh, as of this week, only Moody's does. S and P downgraded the US uh, twelve years ago uh, to AA plus, I think. Um, and now, now Fitch has done the same. Now, both of those downgrades followed um, spats in the US over its debt ceiling. Uh, keen, keen listeners to the podcast and readers of Global Capital will will remember uh, that from just a short time ago. And in fact, that's exactly what Fitch blamed for the downgrade. They uh, they they cited an expected fiscal deterioration. Um, in, in government finances, uh, but also they described it as an erosion of governance that the US keeps having these uh, standoffs and doesn't seem to have a very sort of sophisticated medium term fiscal management process that you keep having these sort of it, it was a brinksmanship. Um, and what that did was sort of everything and nothing really. The um, yield on 10 year treasuries, which is sort of the, the main benchmark that people look at, um, it was. on Tuesday. As of this morning, which is Friday, it's gone up to 4.18%. So that's a a rise of 22 basis points, which is is not shocking. It's not a a huge spike, but it is nonetheless um, a significant thing. And it went beyond the treasury market too, didn't it, Ralph? Because US equities started selling off and then so did even European equities. Yeah, that's right. The S&P 500 is down 1.4% on the week. Uh, the Eurostox index is down about 3%. Um, so yeah, it sort of definitely rippled outwards, that's for sure. And uh, got a lot of people people thinking. And and there's a fear, isn't there, that this it, it could be 
and not to use another horrible cliche, but the straw that broke the camel's back, that basically, you know, the, the market, the US market, especially the stock market, are riding for a fall. And this this could be the thing that trips them up and and brings brings a brings a much wider crash. Yes, that's right. It's early days, of course. And um, I think there are other factors behind behind these moves that aren't really just about the um, opinion of a rating agency. But you know, some of those some of those moves also sort of somewhat uh, backed up what what Fitch was saying. Um, so I guess we will see how f- people feel about the path of US interest rates, the effect that will have on the global economy and the sort of, I guess, debt characteristics of uh, US government borrowing over the coming week or so. So what are, but what are the other things people are worrying about? Right. Well, then, uh, so the downgrade was on Tuesday and then on Wednesday, um, the government, the US government released, uh, sorry, and then on Wednesday, there were better than expected US employment numbers in the US. Now, that that sort of suggests that maybe uh, not enough heat has been taken out of the US economy in the combat against inflation, and that just as people thought the Fed, Federal Reserve would not to, need to put up rates anymore, perhaps perhaps it, that's a less likely prospect after all. And then probably most significantly, uh, the US government announced on Wednesday that it was going to do a uh, an auction of long-term debt next week for $103 billion. And that's a $274 billion increase in its new crash requirement this year versus three months ago. So it's a huge, huge leap in borrowing. And that's, to my mind, that's probably what has driven up uh, yields the most. So, I mean, really, Fitch is right, aren't they? I mean, the fiscal fiscal position is getting worse it's clear the governance is pretty awful the the debt ceiling row we, we didn't go into but is basically the two parties not being able to agree to let the us avoid default by being able to borrow enough so um you know the market is kind of adjusting to that through through higher uh, interest rates and this of course will you know pose a risk to the to the corporate and household sectors won't it because um you know, so far, they've managed to get away without disaster from this very steep interest rate rising cycle. But, you know, there, there could come a point when, you know, the, the cost of debt is just too high for some sectors of the economy. Well, yeah, I mean, just for the US government alone, I mean, no one's suggesting that this is going to be a problem of debt sustainability in the US by any any stretch of the imagination. But to, to give you a flavour, uh, DZ Bank, the German bank, uh, predicts that interest costs for the US government will be 2.8% of GDP in 2023, which is double what they were two years ago. Uh, And you have Mm. to imagine that ever rising rates, you know, they're designed Mm. to slow the economy down. Uh, They're designed to make it harder for companies and households to service debt and so on. Uh, So that will all add to the burden for for borrowers and households in the US and, and beyond. Yeah. And of course, um, there are significant worries in Europe, too, aren't there, where, um, you know, the Bank of England, for example, had to put up rates again by a quarter of a percent this week. And, um, you know, we all know how in hoc to the mortgage market the UK is. And, you know, the increase has really been extreme for for mortgage borrowers. And, um, you know, people think that, you know, it can't be too long before that starts to cause some real pain. But at the moment, uh, prices just keep going up. Well, yes, but apart from in the housing market, though, where um, apparently this month house prices in the UK fell by their uh, biggest uh, monthly, the biggest monthly drop since July 2009, which was, of course, 
um, in the in the teeth of the uh, financial crisis and the sort of recession yeah. that followed. Right. Well, maybe this is the turning point then. Well, we <laughs> Hold on see. to your seats. Yeah, indeed, indeed. But coming back to Fitch and, and the US government, do you think this is going to affect demand for Treasury bonds? Yeah, I think it's going to boost demand for Treasuries. Um, the the structural <laughs> position of the US Treasury market, it's, it's so central uh, to to how the world is financed um that really and the downgrade is not sufficiently big uh to to sort of deter anyone from buying treasuries that really you're buying the same product now just at a better yield um of course underpinning all this is the fact that when push comes to shove the us can just print more dollars to service its debt that's that's simple um but if we take uh, some of the major constituencies of of us treasury buyers here and look at how the downgrade may or may not have affected to them and and i'm in debt to uh, alfonso pecchiatiello uh whose name i've just massacred but who runs an excellent uh, blog <laughs> called the macro compass um he, he's he's pointed out that you know uh if we take commercial banks, which are huge buyers of US treasuries, they buy them as uh, high quality liquid assets under the, the Basel regulations to hold as capital. Well, the downgrade wasn't enough for them to no longer count as high quality liquid assets. So really, they're still buying the same thing just for a better yield. Then if you look at pension funds and insurers, they buy longer term US treasuries, longer dated US treasuries to hold uh, as assets against their long term liabilities. Again, the ratings cut was not enough uh, to deter them or to sort of trigger any any sort of credit barrier or credit restriction than buying them. So again, they're buying they're buying the same thing at a better price. And then uh, more broadly, uh, another sort of you know a really big constituency of the U.S. Treasury buying market is overseas central banks and foreign exchange reserve managers. Um, all countries generally hold dollar reserves, uh, and especially that's especially true in some of the big, large, emerging markets like China and Brazil, where companies there earn dollar revenues for commodities or whatever it might be that they sell, and those dollars all get invested into the U.S. Treasury market because they need to be invested in something that's liquid and safe. And frankly, what else are you going to put your money in? There is no bigger market that's more liquid or more safe than US treasuries. There are, of course, other government bond markets, but let's, let's, well, as, 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 as Macro Alpha's as nickname is, uh, let's, as it points out, the JGB market, the Japanese government market, market is, is not liquid enough. The European government bond market mm. is smaller and it's more fragmented. Uh, and then, of course, they can invest in their own government bonds. But, of course, you have all sorts of um, particular risks to emerging markets that you just don't have when you're buying US treasuries. So really... This is why people are saying it's really not that big a deal. At least the downgrade is not that big a deal after all. I mean, what happens with uh, borrowing interest rates and how that affects the the wider economies is a somewhat sort of related but different issue. But certainly the downgrade itself should not really alter what happens in the bond market. Yes, one is tempted, though, to think of the fall of Rome. And um, I mean, I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong, but, you know, somebody said it took, um, you know, 100 years to to build up uh, the Roman Empire and then like it it declined. The fall took 200 years or something like that. But, um, you know, eventually we all know there will be alternatives to the dollar. And, um, you know, it's clear that China is very, very slowly 
building up the renminbi, building up its credibility, the size, the extent to which it's used in international trade, and so on. So I think the you know the the U.S. has had an incredible run, and and the run will continue. But um, you know, it's not guaranteed that they can have you know crazily large debt f- forever. No, that's that's true. I think to an extent, but I think first of all, the the pace of change with these things is always fairly slow. I don't think you know. I certainly don't think anyone would suggest that either the euro or the renminbi or anything else for that matter will surpass the dollar uh, in the near future. I mean, maybe we'll we'll head to a, a, no. a situation where there's where there's a sort of triumvirate of um, you know reserve currencies, and mm. at least then we've got some choice, and that might might encourage uh, greater debt discipline in the US. I mean, this is probably going to put a few people's backs up, but one is tempted to think also of another very heavily indebted borrower that's, that's been in our uh, pages this week, which is Pemex, the Mexican state oil company, um, which has, a, I think, $100 billion of debt. is the biggest uh, emerging market corporate borrower by far. It's something like 10% of the EM corporate bond index. And and the company's making a loss. And it's been going on and on. The Mexican government has to keep plowing in more and more billions of dollars into it. Oliver West, our US bureau chief, um, wrote a very interesting piece this week about how investors are beginning to think the unthinkable, which is that one day, Pemex might have to restructure its debt. It's an interesting parallel, isn't it? Uh, a, a big institution that's badly managed. Um, the world is reliant on what it produces, yeah. and um, its debts are huge. Yeah, I, I think. I mean, obviously, there are there are key differences, which is, as I said, the US can always just make more money. Um, Pemex can't necessarily just invent oil. Um, but yeah, it's it's a it's a curious situation, and they but... certainly can't uh, get it out of the ground efficiently. No, apparently not. Apparently not. There are obviously further parallels in that Pemex might be a a sort of private company. It's in fact state owned, um, but it's it's too big to to sort of be left to go under. It's too politically important to be sold off for parts, and it sort of it would be a disaster if it did default or restructure. But at the same time, it kind of can't not either. So it's it. I feel like it's something of perhaps like a a sneak preview of the very worst thing that could happen to the US. Although, of course, if the US ever gets into that situation or ever suffers a huge downgrade, then and frankly, everyone else is still going to be downgraded further and we've got much bigger problems. Yes, I wasn't suggesting that the situations were similar at the moment, but there there are sort of formal parallels in the fact yeah. that both of them seem to be trapped in an in a kind of impossible situation where um you know all the outcomes uh, basically seem impossible certainly a pair of very interesting situations to watch to see how they develop uh with with what will be huge repercussions um but another interesting situation i think other people have found similarly uh tricky and hard to resolve um has been something in development finance that you've written about this week john and that's uh, deforestation um, and there's an idea that's had a new lease of life um, to save the world's rainforest. Uh, can you can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so the, the rainforests and, and deforestation of them is obviously a very severe environmental problem. It's receiving increasing attention. And despite all of that, it's actually getting worse, um, shockingly enough. Um, the number of uh, hectares being being lost every year of tropical forest is rising. And and given that so much has already gone, this is it's a very severe problem. And as as people know now, 
um, you if you start damaging a particular forest and cutting away more and more of it and thinning it, um, there's a risk of a tipping point where the ecosystem no longer works. It dries out and becomes savanna. And this this is catastrophic um, for the local environment because it can cause things like droughts, but also um, for the global environment because it's no longer absorbing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And therefore, climate change will, will accelerate even further. So there's enormous Im- imperative and urgency to do something to protect the world's remaining forests. And but, the, but it's very difficult because they don't make they don't generate money. Um, the, you know, there are ways of measuring it that show they that they bring in a bit of income for countries. But really, um, it's 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 wild nature. You know, it's it's not economically productive. Therefore, wh- why should tropical countries keep their forests and protect them and stop people cutting them down um, for, for, for things that will benefit themselves in the long term and and the whole world but you know which have a very clear short-term cost yeah absolutely i mean uh well to take the uk as an example the whole place used to be covered in trees didn't it but um they you know it's yes. now arable fields and towns um and, and no no one yeah. complained about that uh 600 years ago but um anyway so how is finance stepping to the rescue well trying to work out a, a financing mechanism to to deal with this is very difficult in a way, the most obvious answer is aid. You know, the the rich world should should pay countries uh, in in the tropics to to protect their forests. And you know, there's a lot to be said for that. But politically, it hasn't proved doable so far. The 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 rich countries just aren't willing to to cough up in in enough quantity, basically, so far. Perhaps they don't realise the urgency yet. Um, there have been isolated cases of deals. Uh, you know, with with single countries to to get them to protect their forests, but it hasn't grown into something that's sort of generally viable. So um, there's somebody called Ken Lay, who was the treasurer of the World Bank um, until 2010. He's a very well known and respected figure in the bond market for people who whose experience of it goes back to those days. And since retiring from the World Bank, he's Uh, done a number of things, but one of them is work on an idea that they were already working on at the World Bank when he was there, which is to create a sovereign wealth fund funded by uh, rich governments, essentially, uh, an international one, and use the money generated by its investments, not not the actual principle itself, but the the money it can generate for investment, use that to pay um, forest countries to to preserve their forests. And, And it has the big appeal that the, the rich countries would get the money back in the end, um, the principal back, and therefore they they wouldn't have to see it as aid. Right. So let's talk a bit about the mechanics of this then. So all these developed countries pour money into into a pot which gets invested, generally speaking. Now, do the developed countries earn anything on that money or are they just parking that um, as a sort of interest-free loan to the sovereign wealth fund for duration of it of its life? Well, the scheme hasn't been, uh, you know, finalised yet. It's 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 on the drawing board, but there has been a lot of work going into fleshing out how it could work. Um, and Ken Lay did some work with the Centre for Global Development in Washington um, about five years ago to to really work out the governance and how the structure should work. And according to their plan. Um, the the rich country governments would get paid essentially their cost of funds. So so a figure, an interest rate, basically approximating to what it cost them to borrow the money. So let's say there was a $100 billion fund 
and the US, France, Germany, Britain, and a few other countries agreed to contribute. And they would they would each put in, you know, 10 or more billion dollars, and they would have to borrow that money, essentially, um, but they wouldn't pay very much. You know, interest government bond interest rates aren't very high, so they they would get re- reimbursed for that, and they get their money back after twenty years. Okay, and then the excess returns generated by the sovereign wealth fund then go to the uh, the, the countries where the forests are that need preserving, and exactly. presumably there are exactly. restrictions on what they can use the money to do. Well, no, and that's part of the attraction. Um, is the argument is. Um, you know, with aid, there are always restrictions imposed by the aid giver, or there often are, on, on how the money's spent. And, and if it's a specific project or the, the money's being given for a specific purpose, the, the donor tends to sort of say, well, you've got to do these things in order to achieve the end. This is based on a different principle, which is called cash on delivery, which means is keep it very simple. Give the emerging market governments freedom. They can spend the money how they like. But to get the money, they have to produce the results. So it would be based purely on satellite imaging of forests, which the data is already captured and available um, because of the quality of uh, satellite photography now. And so it's possible to verify forest cover globally, pretty much. And this this information could be used to hand out rewards, essentially, to the participating uh, tropical forest countries for protecting their forests. Okay, so the pressure to spend the money on on forests is more implicit than explicit. Exactly, exactly. They can, I mean, if they just pass a law that says no one can cut down the trees, and that's enough, you know, that's fine. They don't have to spend any money on it. But, you know, in practice, sometimes, you know, protection measures are needed and, you know, investments have to be made um, to sort of, you know, provide alternative employment and things like that to sort of, stop people cutting them down and of course but, enforcement but all of the achievement yes exactly but but all the achievement of that is left up to the to the countries to to sort out themselves okay and have any of the um the uh, forest covered countries expressed um joy and delight at this idea or uh, are they is there some sort of skepticism about it well so the so this is the the exciting thing that this this idea has been sort of being developed by Ken Lay and others for for really quite a long time now, but it's suddenly leapt forward uh, and been given a boost because um, Ken Lay was able to go to Paris in June at a summit uh, held by President Emmanuel Macron and pitch the idea to very senior people, including uh, Macron himself. And they liked the idea and, and have put it onto the sort of outcomes agenda from the summit. And a working group is now being formed, um, hosted by the World Bank, which is going to sort of try and develop the idea. And it's got the buy-in of the presidents of Colombia, Gabon, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. So those are three forest countries. The, the, the forest nations are actually quite well organized already. Um, there's something called the HFLD group, which is high forest, low deforestation. And these are countries like Gabon is one of them, Suriname's another, Malaysia's in the group, where They've got a lot of tropical forests or, or indeed northern forests, and they haven't cut down that much of them yet. So they and or they're not cutting them down aggressively at the moment. And so they um, sort of say, well, you know, we've got all these great forests and, you know, you rich countries need to help us protect them. Well, this is another interesting point, isn't it? I mean, how are the funds to the forested countries going to be distributed? Because 
those countries vary hugely in size and like the percentage that's covered um in forest and of course the aggregate area yeah. of forest they each have i mean is is all the money going to go to brazil for the amazon or and then like the rest is just scraps so how does this work yeah well so that is one of the problems um brazil the, the forests in brazil are huge obviously and indonesia is another country with a very large extent so if if you had a global fund it would really need to be really incredibly large um if distributed um you know sort of e completely evenly between all all the countries based on forest area so you know it, it's not easy to to figure out the right mechanism um but people involved are confident that that it's worth trying um and you know the at the moment most of these countries are not getting paid anything to protect their forests and you know even a few hundred million um could make a huge difference to to the whole way they perceive them and whether they perceive them as an as a valuable asset or simply as a sort of dead space that they might as well exploit so i think i think um you know it, 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 no one no one thinks this is easy but uh, I think it's, it's gradually gaining credence that, that it's worth a try. Yeah, and has much thought been given to uh, how the targets will be set to receive payment from the fund? Is it going to be done on percentage of forest preserved, for example, or something like that? Yes, um, the the group the work done a few years ago at CGD did go into this. Um, they recommend a formula that that will be based on partly on um, the degree of preservation. So, for example, if there's uh, 100 units of, of forest one year, it, you know, if, if that grows or, or stays the same, you know, that's, that's rewarded. Whereas if it declines by 1%, that's, you know, bad news. Um, and, but, but that would also take into account the extent of forest, because obviously, you know, the bigger your forests are, the more valuable it is that you preserve them, the more difficult it is to do. And, you know, therefore there has to be some, you know, benefit for that as well. So it would be a sort of combined formula. And obviously negotiating that precise formula when, you know, if this gets off the ground, that's going to be a difficult negotiation. Um, but, you know, hopefully the, the desire to get this done among stakeholders will be strong enough that um, it can be overcome. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a fascinating idea, and I guess we'll uh, we'll we'll follow your coverage to see how it how it progresses. Um, and you mentioned Gabon; um, they were in the market this week with a, a bond of their own. And our senior emerging market reporter George Collard, in his investigations um, around African sovereign debt this week, found out about an interesting paradox, which we'll talk to him about now. <laughs> Hello, George. Welcome back to the Global Capital Podcast. Good morning, Ralph, and good morning, John. Now, George, uh, much excitement in emerging market bonds this week because we've had our first, or we are having our first African sovereign deal in over a year. Um, tell us a little bit about who's in the market. Yes, Gabon yesterday started pricing a $500 million deal. Um, it's the first sub-Saharan African sovereign to do something in the primary bond market since April last year, so well over a year. Um, we've had a few, few North African sovereigns this year, Egypt and Morocco, but this is the first one from, from Sub-Saharan Africa. So it's an exciting time. 
Okay, well, that's exciting. The The usual question we ask um, at Global Capital is, of course, what, what deals will follow from this? Um, are, are people sort of suggesting there's going to be a renaissance of uh, sub-Saharan African sovereign bonds as a result? I'm not sure renaissance would be the right word, but there, there are a handful expected. Speaking to syndicate bankers um, over the past few weeks and then investors this week, there's been a rally in high yield sovereign bonds, not just Africa, in the past few weeks. So the market is in healthier shape than it has been and investors are are reasonably confident um and that sets up you know a more benign market and opens up the the door to sub-saharan african sovereigns who've who've had little to no access in the past 18 months or so so george you said a rally but how much of a rally and what's driving it it's quite significant um b-rated sovereign spreads are, are near their historical levels over the last 10 to 20 years um, driving it from, from an Africa perspective, driving it has been some progress on debt restructurings in, in Zambia and Ghana over the past few months. That's cheered up investors. And there's also the, the wider issue of interest rates. And we are getting closer and closer to the time that investors have been looking for where we have some real clarity on where interest rates are going to go in the US, um, which is you know, the all important thing for those funding in dollars, which is what African sovereigns usually do. Um, all right. Well, those look like ripe conditions for new issues, George. But one one must always be uh, cynical of um, syndicate bankers recommending uh, deals are imminent because they tend to sort of favour that position in the same way that um, children tend to f- uh, favour having ice cream for every meal. Um, what do investors really think? Are they? I know there's been a rally, so obviously someone's been buying this stuff or at least marking it tighter. Um, is it is it as straightforward as uh, as uh, appetite is back for these new issues? Uh, no, it's it's important to note that even if spreads are near historical levels, a a spread to the U.S. Treasuries that are below one percent as they were a few years ago is very different to four percent now. So, hmm. cost is is one of the one of the major problems. And you might think that an emerging market investor would see a 10, 12 percent yield on a new issue and think, great, that's you know, it's a huge payout, but Debt sustainability is a, you know, a, a hot topic in Africa at the moment, and there are lots of sovereigns that there are question marks over that debt sustainability. So investors actually don't want to see issuers coming at really high prices because it either suggests some desperation, they really need the money, and that in itself is a bad thing, or it just doesn't give off an impression of good debt management. Um, and secondly, they, they don't really need to. Maturities are pretty light this year. It's, it's just four billion across the whole African continent, compared with twelve billion next year, or nearly twelve billion next year. So, for those that don't need to issue, um, I think investors just would rather see them sit tight and wait a little bit longer for when financing might, conditions might be a bit easier next year. And are there any African sovereigns that that do need to issue? I know you said the uh, refinancing uh, volume or the maturity volumes are low, but they're not necessarily evenly distributed across all the borrowers, are they? No, there's there's one sovereign that does have um, a real need to refinance, and that's Kenya. It's got a two billion maturity next June, uh, so bit big, um, and investors are worried about how it's going to be able to repay that. Um, and that that is one sovereign that is expected to try and do something before the end of this year. It's it's it wouldn't be able to just issue a new bond on its own um, as a standalone new issue. It will have to do some sort of liability management exercise, which I think they've been quite public about, and investors are expecting it. Um, how it goes is a is another matter, and whether it will be able to do it, we'll see. But it it is earmarked as as one candidate for coming to the primary market. 
Well, this sort of brings us full circle back to Gabon, George. Um, that's not a straightforward new issue either, is it? Um, tell us a bit about what Gabon's actually doing. No, it's a rare transaction it's doing. It's doing a debt for nature swap, um, which is a, a structure that allows it to save some money by rebuying existing bonds, issuing a new one at a lower rate and making savings um, and then using those savings for, for marine conservation in Gabon's case. Um, the difference with this to a, a conventional issue is that it has a, an insurance policy from a US finance agency, which gives the new bond that it was pricing yesterday and AA2 rating far above Gabon's single B or C AA1 ratings. So it's not a traditional bond issuance that we might expect to come from other sovereigns in the next few months. It's, it's not really a great marker um, for how the market might go. And secondly, Gabon, unlike Kenya, is not in any debt distress. It has low ratings and it has quite a high debt, but it's not a sovereign that has investors worried about default in the next few years. So what, what do you think Kenya might do? What, what, are the, what are the options open to it? Aside from issuing a new bond and some liability management, it has the option of uh, multilateral lenders and development finance institutions, those sorts of, of sources. And that, I think, is what investors seem to be encouraging. They suggest that that, that, that source of funding is cheaper than private capital markets generally. And I think investors would prefer sovereigns to use that in the meantime, whilst borrowing costs on private markets are so high to keep themselves ticking over. Um, and I think they're doing that. That's the impression um, that investors have got is that debt management offices across Africa mostly understand that and are not going to try and come to the market. But that is not to say that some will try, won't try, sorry. And you, you mentioned liability management. What, how does that help? If you issue a new bond, but do a tender at the same time, so issue a bond, let's say a billion dollars, and then tender for, for some existing bonds um, that are maturing in the near future, you can effectively swap investor money from old bonds to a new one. So the investors are not investing a huge amount of new money. All they're doing is changing maturities effectively. It's not exactly as simple as that, but that's the principle. And I think that would be more attractive for investors. They would rather change their exposure to a sovereign rather than add new exposure. That's sometimes what happens, though, in a in a debt restructuring, which the ratings agencies uh, sometimes consider a default. So um, there seems to be some nuance here about when something's a liability management exercise and when something's a, a debt restructuring. Um, how would how would the market view um, a liability management exercise for Kenny? Do you think? I think it would be preferable, and it would be the only way that. Um they would be able to, to issue any new debt on the market. I don't think they would have any chance of just coming to the market and issuing a straight up bond. Um, and that is not just, that does not just apply to Kenya. It's one investor I spoke to yesterday said that she, you know, finds it quite unlikely that any African sovereigns would be able to do a standalone bond issue on the primary market. Perhaps one or two might be able to, but for the vast majority, it just wouldn't be possible. They would have to do some sort of liability management exercise alongside it for investors to take part or secure some sort of guarantee or insurance policy from an institution. There is a, I got the sense though from your story that attitudes towards um, what is a sustainable amount of interest to pay on debt has sort of shifted a bit. We used to talk about this uh, 10% level as a sort of a general number uh, above which if an issue was paying above that for debt then it was sort of considered um unsustainable 
But Egypt uh, issued a Sukuk earlier in the year, didn't it, at a coupon of 10 and 7 eighths of a percent. Um, is there a sense that uh, investors are a bit more tolerant for, for higher yields now? I think so, yeah. Uh, another example you could use is Turkey, which is one of you know the biggest issuers of euro bonds in, in emerging markets and is a very large economy. They've been printing bonds for the last year or so, or even longer, actually, over 9%, um, which... It's partly a reflection of where the market has been, but it's also a reflection of Turkey's individual problems. But the point still stands is that, yeah, I think that that 10% barrier, um, whether it ever was, you know, a hard and fast line, it, it does seem to have disappeared. And, and one investor I spoke to said that investors, in his opinion, would buy a bond from Africa, from an African sovereign, if it came at 11%, 12%, um, which seems very high. But I think realistically, that might be where a lot of sovereigns, you know, they would have to pay if they wanted to do something. They could also do short dated bonds, presumably. Yes, there's that option. I, many of the bonds that we've seen, um, and not just from African sovereigns in the past year or so, they, they've not been super long tenors. We haven't seen many deals at 10, 20, 30 years. They've generally been below 10 years. There is a paradox, isn't there, George, or a sort of irony underlying all of this, though. You know, the investors are talking about whether it would be wise for you know, African governments to come to the market at, say, a 12% yield or, you know, and, and sort of if they did, it might be uh, sort of, you know, unwise because they'd be locking themselves into very expensive debt for a long time. But, you know, this is all happening be precisely because those very same investors are not willing to buy the bonds uh, more tightly. There's basically a, a, a great weakness in the emerging market bond demand for, especially for African debt, isn't there? And and, um, you know, you know, it just a sort of the fact that they haven't been able to issue since April 2022 is pretty dire indictment of the market as a as a as a useful thing for Africa, isn't it? Yes. It, one investor made the point that buyers would welcome some African or at least some B-rated sovereigns in the primary markets. So not necessarily just Africa. There are B-rated sovereigns outside of Africa, but because it would offer them some liquidities and, and some high high yield um, because the secondary market can only take them so far and they need new debt to come. And, you know, the, the, the market has been shrinking for, for B-rated sovereigns and African sovereigns in particular. There were maturities all through last year. There have been maturities this year, but no new bonds to replace those. So, yeah, it's, it, it is a paradox that on the one hand, they don't want issuers to come with really high yields because it might suggest that they're desperate for money or that they're not managing their finances correctly. Yet at the same time, they would probably buy it. follow all of the stories discussed on this week's podcast, please go to globalcapital.com. And of course, you can subscribe for this podcast for free. It's out every Friday. Just search for us on any podcast platform of your choosing. Thank you to John and to George for joining me to record this edition. Uh, we'll be back for more from the capital markets next week. So thank you very much for listening and goodbye.